And I was saying to the guys at uh, Pulse, our young adult ministry, we get together for a Bible study here, just a little circle here on uh, Wednesday nights. And I was saying to them, if you want to understand the Bible and if you want to know God, you've got to know the stories. You really have to, don't you? You have to know the story of God's action in his world. You, you just have to know them. You have to know the story of Adam and Eve. You have to know the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Noah and the ark, the story of Joseph and his coat of many colours, the story of Ruth and Naomi, Esther and Mordecai, the story of David and Goliath, the story of Jonathan and Saul, the calling of the prophet Samuel. Remember that story? The failing of Eli and his sons. And the story of David and Bathsheba. You know, I could go on and on, couldn't I? I could go on and list a whole lot of, of just a few word phrases about a story. And you only have to mention a name, like, say, Bathsheba, and a whole flood of images and thoughts and truths come washing over us, if you know the story. If you don't know the story doesn't mean anything, does it? It really doesn't. And of course, that is the tragedy for so many today in that they simply have never heard the stories. We live in a post-Christendom world. By that I mean the Christian church is not at the centre of our community. We are actually where we were in the first century, very much on the fringe. And people just don't know. They just don't know the story. And I often think it's funny that with um, teenagers over the years working with them, that there was this phrase, you know, what would Jesus do? We ask ourselves this question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And they even wear armbands with, you know, what would Jesus do on it? And, uh, and the trouble is that so many of them say that, but they actually don't know what Jesus did. They actually don't know the stories. And today... I want us to think about this truth that it is not just life is not just about individual little stories, though that is true, but it is all actually part of one big story. One big, big story. I mean, absolutely everything. Every single thing which has, which has ever happened to every single person who has ever lived on planet Earth if part of one great big story of what God is doing in his world. I often think that's why it's called history, because it really is his story. You might be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, okay, that might be true, but I'm not part of any story. I'm not. I have not given permission for my life to be part of any story at all. I don't want any part of this. Well, let me assure you, when it comes to history, you have no choice. God is writing his story for his own sake, for his own glory and honour, and you or I are part of it, whether we like it or not. You are part of what God is writing about his actions in this place, at this time, and you are part of it, whether you like it or not. So this morning, I want us to turn to Numbers chapter 13, one of the first books of the Bible, and I want us to... Spend some time in the story of what happened 
when God brought his people to the very border of the land which he had promised to give to them. This, I think, is one of those stories you simply have to know. You've got to know this story. And I think this is one of those stories which contains so much revelation about what God is like and who he is. This is one of those stories which should profoundly shape the way you live out your life. I really think it is. This is one of those stories that I think should shape us as God's people living in 2014 in in this place on the central coast. This is one of those stories that will absolutely change your life, I think, if you let it in. God promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's just the family. Okay, Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. That he would make them and their descendants into a mighty nation. He said, I will bless you and I will bless all of the people, peoples of the earth through you. I will be your God. See, God came to this one man and he made that promise to him and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what the Bible says. Now, the only problem was, if you know the story, is that their descendants, the people of Israel, if you're wondering who Israel is, well, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the grandson, was renamed Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel are his 12 sons. The only trouble was that they eventually ended up in Egypt. That's the story of Joseph and his coat of many colours and all of that. You need to know that story too. But they ended up in Egypt and then for 450 years they were in slavery in Egypt. And they cried out to their God for a deliverer. And finally God sent them Moses. Now hopefully you know the story of Moses. If you don't, you need to know the story. You need to read the story. See, God brought them out of Egypt by his might and power. And then they, they crossed the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming after them. You see, they, they left Egypt and then Pharaoh basically said, no, I want them back. So he, he goes after them with the army and they come up to the, the, uh, the Red Sea and then eventually God parts the Red Sea and they're able to go through the Red Sea and then the Pharaoh's army, the sea comes back over them and they're destroyed. And then they wander around in the wilderness going from place to place following the leading of their God who appeared to them, who knows the story? How did God appear in the wilderness? That's right. A pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. It's amazing, isn't it? Do you think these people saw God in that sense? Can you imagine what that would be like today? If we could say, that is God over there. It's just lightning and everything in this pillar so he's leading them and you know when pharaoh's army catches them on the edge of the sea where does god go he goes around between them he protects them he stands there between them anyway they cross over he's delivered them they cross over the sea and then they wander around for a little while in the wilderness and god gives them the ten commandments and uh, so they he's revealing himself to them he's saying this is how i want you to live you are my people And he says, now we have come to the promised land, the land that was promised to your your forefathers. And we're going to go in and we're going to take it. Nearly five centuries have passed. 
Just think about that. 500 years have passed since the promise. And they're on the edge of taking everything that God has given them. Who knows how many generations, who knows how many lives lives lived really since God made that promise to Abraham and now their time had come to enter into God's promised land. So that's where we're up to in the story. Okay, that's where we are. Numbers 13. And the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Take note of their mission. Their mission was to explore the land of Canaan, which God was going to give them. These men were chosen to go and have a look at what God was going to give them. I want you to notice they were not asked by God to go and see if it was going to be possible for them to militarily take the land. God was going to give them this land, period. Verse 3. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, son of Zakor. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, son of Sodi. From the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Joseph, Gadi, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sessa, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Vossi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, son of Maki. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. I want you to take very careful note of what we just did. We have just read out in 2014 the names of men who lived 35 centuries ago. Just let that think in, sink in for a moment. We read out their names carefully. And I want you to remember that when in the story, in God's word, when Pharaoh is referred to, we're not given his name. It just says Pharaoh. Archaeologists have just said, why couldn't we have had his name? We get the midwife's name in detail. But we don't get Pharaoh's name. 35 centuries later, we are reading out those names. You know, these men are carefully named. They are named. Their fathers are named. Their tribe is named. Verse 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like. And whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, what kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? 
Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do you best to bring back some of the fruit to the land? It says it was the season for the first ripe grapes. I want you to think about this. You see, Moses speaks as though they needed to establish whether or not they could take the land. Does he not? Moses speaks as though they needed to establish whether the land indeed was a good land. As though God would not have the very best for them. But that is not what God told them to do. God said, go and explore the land I'm going to give you. And it would seem that Moses, yes, even Moses got it wrong. He got off mission. This was not what God had commanded them to do. So they went up, they explored the land, they discovered that indeed it was a good land. Though they found grapes so large, just think about this, that it took two men to carry the cluster. We've had a bumper grape season, haven't we? We really have. It was foretold last season by John Dunlop, who brings grapes to our Sunday night meal. And you had a bumper crop last year, didn't you? I remember him saying, it just keeps fruiting. Well, this year, our shops have been full of grapes, haven't they? And they're cheap. It's glorious. But can you imagine? We've always got grapes in our fridge. Can you imagine a cluster of grapes so big that two men have got a stick between them and they're carrying saying, look at the grapes from this land that the Lord God is going to give us. So they explored the land. They discovered that it was good. And then they came back and before all the people, verse 27, it says, we went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. And here is the fruit. In other words, all that God said it would be, it is. It's great. It is a wonderful land. But, it's always a dodgy word that, isn't it? But. But, and this is where everything starts to fall apart. God is a good God, but, but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. There are giants living in the land and we are like grasshoppers before them. That's what they said. We're like grasshoppers before these guys. And then in Numbers 14... It says, that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We should choose a leader and go back to slavery. Now, I just want you to remember, these are the very people 
These are the very people, the actual generation who was delivered from Egypt by God himself. These are the actual people who lived through the plagues. These are the people who said, gee, it's dark everywhere, isn't it? It's not dark over us. These are the actual people who said, my goodness, there's locusts devouring the land. But there's not a single locust in the land of Goshen where we live. These are the people who saw the firstborn of every family in Egypt killed on one night. And none of the children of Israel were touched. These are the actual people who saw the pillar of fire and cloud. These are the people who walked through the sea. This is not three or four generations later. They're not saying, how oh, I remember granddad told me some story. No, no, these are the actual people who walked through the Dead Sea. Sorry, the Red Sea. These are the very people, the actual generation. Okay. Verse 6. See, Moses and Aaron, they're just shattered. They fall down before the people distraught. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israel assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. I want you to notice, once again, their involvement, their individual involvement is carefully recorded. See, God's glory appeared to all the Israelites and he met with Moses and God said, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed amongst them? Can you hear the heart of God in this? He is angry. He says, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. Remember, this is God speaking here. It says God spoke to Moses as one man speaks to another. This is God speaking to Moses. He says, I will strike them down with a plague and I'll destroy them. And then I'll tell you what, Moses, I'm going to make a mighty nation through you. I mean, it's the most amazing image, isn't it, really, of Moses' relationship with God. Now, just remember that. The closeness of Moses' relationship with God. And Moses replied, No, Lord. Amazing, isn't it? Moses actually said, No. No way, God. And then I won't read it all out, but you should read it at home. Moses actually says to God, he argues with him, he says, Don't do this. Don't wipe them out. Don't send a plague for your sake, Lord. 
Because the surrounding nations will see. And, and, and for your honour and your glory, don't do this. And verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. I have forgiven them. Now I want you to note this. They were forgiven. Very clearly, isn't it? They were forgiven. I have forgiven them, God said. But there were consequences for their rebellion. And very serious consequences. It says in verse 21, it says, Nevertheless, I have forgiven them. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who, were, who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And then God said, Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. And then he said, Turn back now and head towards the desert. Amazing, isn't it? They're right on the threshold of stepping into the land flowing with milk and honey. And God just says, you're forgiven, but by my honour, by my word, you will not enter that land. And every one of you who's 20 years and older, who has seen everything I have done, will die in the desert. Now, I haven't got other slides here because I just want you to listen to the story. And we go down to verse 28. So he said to them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. Now, at this point, I want to point out to you that our words are very powerful. You want to be very careful about the things you say. You really do. Especially the things you say before God. Because he says, the very things you have accused me of doing, I will do. Your bodies will drop in the desert. You will. You will die in the desert. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has, was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with an uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them into the, in, to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert your children will be shepherds here in the wilderness for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. See, they were forgiven, 
But there were very real consequences, weren't there, for their sin. And God just says, they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. The other spies, he says, none of them went into the promised land except the two men, Joshua and Caleb and Joshua. The other spies, the ten who spread the bad report, who made the whole community grumble against the Lord, they didn't even get to live another 40 years. They were struck down and died there and then right there before the Lord. And when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. But you see, they still didn't get it. It's amazing. They still didn't get it. Look at what they did. Verse 40. The next verse. Early the next morning they went up toward the hill country. We have sinned, they said. We have sinned. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. That's what they said. But Moses said, oh no. Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up. The Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, there's that word again. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites, the Canaanites who lived in that hill country, came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. In other words, all the way back to the wilderness. That's a sobering tale, isn't it? It's a sobering story. And what I've found is pretty much everything you read here in this part of the Bible is our story. It's exactly, I mean, they're delivered from slavery. We are delivered from slavery. To what? To sin. It's our story. We live with the consequences of our sin, but we can be forgiven. The few things, just a couple of things I want us to take very careful note of from this passage. Firstly, there seems to be a direct correlation between the degree of revelation one has received and the swiftness of God's judgment. I want you to think about this. There is a direct correlation between the level of revelation and the swiftness of God's judgment. So if you live in deepest, darkest Africa in a jungle and you have never ever heard the name of Jesus and the only revelation you have is the natural order. Very little revelation. God's judgment is in accordance because God is a just God. Is he not? But the more revelation we receive, the quicker, the quicker the judgment of God. The more God has shown us about himself, the more he has revealed his power and might to you, the more he expects of you. See, these people had seen God do great things on their behalf. More, more so than virtually any other generation. But they still grumbled against God. They refused to believe he was leading them into this land 
and they refused to believe that he would give them victory against the inhabitants of the land. They refused to have faith in their God, and as a result, God's judgment upon them was swift and decisive. As revelation increases, so does God's judgment. And you know what? We see exactly the same thing in Moses' life. Just a few verses later, once again, you've got to read the story. Remember, Moses has an even greater level of revelation. God speaks to him face to face. God allows him to say, no, Lord, and live. God allows him to have an argument with him, and Moses wins the argument. It's amazing, isn't it? God would come down to the tent of meeting, and the cloud would cover the tent, and Moses would be in the tent. And when he came out, his face would be just shining with the radiance of God. You know what? Just a few verses, a few chapters later, the people are grumbling once again about not having enough water. And God said, speak to the rock. Say to the rock. And Moses kind of forgets and he has his staff there and he goes, you want water? Just like a magician. Water goes... Water comes rushing out and it's kind of like Moses just for a moment there forgets who's God. He's like, I did this. Want to see a magic trick? Shazam! And he takes the glory for the water. God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. That seems like a small thing, doesn't it? But because Moses' revelation was so high, his revelation, his knowledge of God was so high, God's judgment is swift. And he says, Moses, you will never enter the promised land. Moses who dragged these people, kicking and streaming, out of Egypt. Moses, you will not enter the promised land for what you just did. Now, before you start thinking to yourself, well, phew, I haven't seen much of God's power and might. Oh, I've only had a very small revelation, haven't I, God? I've been shown nothing, barely more than that, that poor wretch living in deepest, darkest jungle somewhere. No, no, no. no. Just remember this. These people had no scripture. It hadn't been written yet. I mean, Moses is probably making a few notes up on Mount Sinai. What was that about Genesis? What, what are you saying? In the beginning, yeah. You what? You created the heavens and the earth? The scripture hasn't been written yet. They don't have that. We have the word of God. They had no Old Testament. They had no New Testament. They did not have the stories we have. They did not have these God-given containers of truth. That's what these stories are. They knew nothing of Jesus. You know what? I think the most important thing is they did not have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living within us, convicting us of sin, revealing so much to us about the nature of God. We have all of these blessings which they did not have. And in addition to that, there is no generation of Christians who have had access to knowledge and understanding as we do. 
Do we really think that we will be treated any differently when we refuse to trust God and when we refuse to enter into the future God has for us? Do, do we really think that our rebellion is any less offensive to God than it was for these men and women? I mean, we are dealing with the same God who, who knows us in detail as he knew these men and women. And God rightly expects much from you and me. We have more revelation, more understanding, more resources than any generation before us. And Jesus said very clearly, for those who much has been given, much will be expected. Second thing I want you to take very careful note of from this passage. The spies' names were meticulously recorded. Their names were recorded, their father's names were recorded, and their tribe was recorded. They were not faceless men, leaders of their tribe. That is not how God works. Jesus tells us not a single sparrow falls to the ground that my heavenly father doesn't know about. See, God knows you in great detail. He does. He knows the very hairs on your head. They're Jesus' words, not mine. He knows every cell in your body. And that's why he's such a wonderful judge, because he knows why we do things, because he knows all the history of our past. He knows what's been done to us. He knows what's been said to us. He knows all of that. He knows us in incredible detail. He knows every cell in your body and your days are numbered to the precise moment of your death. It actually says that. It says that in the scriptures. You are not given a moment more. Not a moment more. Which is really nice. It is. It's nice to know that when you're facing something serious like cancer or your marriage is falling apart, or your job is falling apart, you've got no, no work. God knows all about your cancer. He knows all about your marriage. He knows all about your work situation. It's great to know that God knows that. You're not just some other human being. To God, you have a name, you have an address, you have a mother and a father, you have grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents, and he doesn't just know their name. He knew them like he knows you. To God, you have a medical history, an employment history, a relationship history. You have a detailed history which God knows in detail. He knows your story. And it's an important story, your story. It is. But there is a more important story, a more all-encompassing story. And your story is actually part of that. There is his story the story of what God is doing and what God has done in the world and it's all for his glory. It is. It's not for yours. It's not for mine. It's for his glory because he is the only one who deserves all the glory. And for him to deny that would be to tell a lie. And God cannot lie. So he says, I'm the only one who deserves the glory because no one comes close to me. Now, you know what is truly extraordinary is that God invites us to individually be part of his story. Just like those Israelites on the edge of the promised land 35 centuries ago, it wasn't just about them. They were a tiny, tiny part of all that God was doing, all that he was doing in the world. 
But that little part was very important. A people he was building who ultimately would be made holy and righteous by the sacrifice of the Son of God on a Roman cross 15 centuries later. But you know, because of their rebellion, because of their lack of faith, their disobedience, their part in that story was changed. It was changed from plan A. It was chained from being soldiers in the advancing army under God's command, men and women taking hold of all that God had for them, to being wanderers in the wilderness, waiting for nothing more than death. You know what? Your life is being written into God's story whether you like it or not. Your individual, precious absolutely known by God in detail, life is being written into his, into his story. You know, there will come a time when part of God's story will read, Murray David Shanks, son of Donald Robert Shanks, born the 28th of May 1967, lived in Gorakon on the central coast of New South Wales, and during those years he did all that God commanded him to do. He willingly stepped into the tiny part of God's story planned for him. Or it will read something like this. Murray David Shanks, son of Donald Robert Shanks, born 28th of May, etc., etc. He refused to do what God commanded him to do. He refused to step into, to willingly step into the part of God's story planned for him and he spent his days wandering in the wilderness or going to church week after week, waiting to die. And he never entered into all that God had for him. Your life is being written into God's story, whether you like it or not. And I see many of you stepping up and entering into God's plan for you. But sadly, I also see others who seem to just be refusing to do so. Let me just say to you, this is your time. And time is short. Life is short. It really is. And God's opportunities don't wait around forever. You know, we've said goodbye this morning in our service to Beryl. In 2006, we prayed a lot about this and we really felt that God was leading our leadership team at the time to ask Beryl to step up onto the eldership. There was an opportunity there, wasn't there? And thank God that Beryl responded to God's call on her life to step into that. But she could have said no. She could have said no, not now. Uh, in a few years' time, maybe. That opportunity came and went. And I'm so glad that she said yes. And she stepped into that part where God was saying, Now, Beryl, I've got something more for you. I know your beloved husband, Ken, has passed away. And it would be tempting for you to think, Well, I'm just going to cruise on down to the finish line. But no, God had other things for her. And I'm so glad that she said yes and she stepped into that part of the story. I'm so glad that 
that years ago, nine years ago, Sandy felt the call of God on her life to get involved with Operation Christmas Child. Because, because she did that, we got brought into that story of blessing. Hundreds of children, thousands of children, have been blessed because Sandy said yes to what God was calling her to do. Your life is being written into God's story, whether you like it or not. You know, think about those Israelites just quickly. Do you really think God couldn't have just wiped them out? He could have wiped out those nations and said, okay, go on, in you go. He could have done that. Of course he could have. But God invites us into what he is doing. He wanted the people involved. He wanted them part of it all. There's heaps more glory for God that way. And he knows it blesses us, it grows our faith, it makes us stronger, it makes us more like Jesus when we work with God. We have a mission. We do. We have a mission. And we've talked about this in the last few weeks. We have a mission just like the Israelites had a mission. We are to be a blessing to the nations just like they were. We are to go into all the world with the good news about Jesus and with the story that, of everything that God has done for us. We are to teach people about walking with Jesus and invite them into the family of God. That is our mission. The question is, will you be part of all that God is doing? Not in a theoretical abstract sense, but here. In this time and in this place where the rubber meets the road. Because that's where it happens. In real everyday events. So I was saying to the, the guys in Pulse the other night, you go through the Old Testament, every story where God does something amazing that we talk about for thousands of years was an everyday event. What was Moses doing when the burning bush <laughs> appeared? He was just looking after sheep and goats, wasn't he? The most everyday thing. What was David doing when Goliath threatened the people of Israel and dishonoured his God? Delivering groceries. Here, son, take this cheese and a bit of cow's milk to, uh, or goat's milk up to your brothers. There, there's a good boy, run on, up you go. What was, what was Gideon doing? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's doing an everyday thing. God will do extraordinary things. He will appear to us the most amazing times. It'll always be every day. When are you going to step into the story? What story? And there will definitely be a story. What story will be written about you? Let's pray. Lord, I'm very challenged by your word today. And I pray we all are. And all I pray is that you would individually just reveal yourself to us, show us where to step, what to say yes to, what to say no to. But Lord, I just pray that all of us would step into the future you have for us, the story you have for us, and that we would not be like these slaves, these, these, um, not slaves, these spies, 
who could have had such a crucial key role and they missed it. I just pray you'd speak to us and by your spirit you would give us the courage to say yes when you call us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.